This morning we are going to be looking in our last teaching session on this series, and if you're just joining us today, welcome to the last message. <laughs> uh, but if I would encourage you to go to our website and uh, tap into the other messages that are all there for you. Marvelous, marvelous teaching. Um, and today we come to one that is going to focus in on a weapon, on a weapon. But I think, unfortunately, some of that has been informed and generated by some very dark realities in the pages of church history that we simply cannot deny. The atrocities that have been perpetrated on so many people, not only in the name of religion, but in the name of Christ. And it's wrong. Well, such a concern will be germane to our consideration this morning, as I said, because we come now to this last piece of armor that Paul mentions for us, and it's found in Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm not sure what it will mean, but I'm going to uh, preach um, like Jesus uh, this morning. Uh, no PowerPoint. I mean, how did he preach without PowerPoint? I don't know how he did it, but we are going to try. So if you have your Bibles or your device... Whatever you have, I have my $49 Bible. You can take your $495 device and read from there if you so desire. But our passage is found in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to start reading at verse 10. I think it'll be important for us, as Clyde has done over the last several weeks, to read the whole context here in order to land on the one particular piece that we're going to look at this morning. And friends, we do this not out of habit, but out of... Necessity, I remind you, this is the Word of God. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that the words may be given to me in, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am ambassador in chains, and that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. We thank God for his word to our hearts this morning. Well, as I mentioned, we come to this last piece of armor, the sword of the spirit. In verse 17, 
And Clyde reminded us that in this verse where we find the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, there's a change in the verb that is used here. Throughout the, the, the preceding verses, Paul is admonishing him to take up, to pick up, or to hold, or to take. Here, the word is actually receive. Receive the helmet of salvation and receive the sword of the spirit, which reminds us this is not something that we can fabricate. This is not something that we conjure up. This is something that comes to us from God. So as we look at this, the sword of the spirit, just to give some rails on which to travel, let me suggest we look at, consider two things. Very simply, we consider, first of all, how this weapon is described. So the what, what is this weapon? And then secondly, how the weapon is deployed. The how, how do we use this? I'm not convinced we're real good at that. So, how is this weapon described, first of all? Well, we can't help but notice that when we come to this weapon, the, or piece of armor, the sword of the spirit, as opposed to basically every other piece that we've considered so far, this is the first offensive piece. The rest has been protective. It's been more or less defensive. Now we have an offensive piece of armor. And it's the sword of the spirit. Now I wonder what you would think of when you think of a sword. Because I'm going to warn you right now, there's, there's two words in the Greek that are used. My guess is that some of you, if not most of us, would think of something like this baby. Yeah, there we go. A sword. Well, you know, the Greek word for this kind of sword is rompsaia. Don't even try to say that with me. <laughs> rompsaia. This is a different kind of sword. The interesting thing is, folks, that's not the word that Paul uses here. In fact, the, Paul, the word that Paul uses here is a word called makaira, which describes a short blade, or even a dagger. Now, aren't you disappointed? <laughs> I mean, that's the sword of the spirit, really? Well, actually, you know what's interesting about this? Typically, when a, when a Roman soldier went to battle, in his right hand would be a spear. And I find it interesting, there's no mention of the spear in the armor here. But that was for long distance. That was for aiming at enemies far away. Everything else was protected, but on his left side would typically be a shorter sword or something like this, a dagger. And what we need to understand about this, folks, is that this is a weapon that's designed for close combat. Proximity is assumed in the use of this weapon. This is the weapon that was used by one of the disciples that Mark talks about in his gospel, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane where they come, and it says they came to him with swords and clubs. They came to him with these things, or shorter swords or longer little blade, but not the rapsia or whatever it is there. They came with those, and one of those who was with Jesus lopped off the ear of the high priest. I doubt it was with this thing. Or he was really good if he did. Anyways... It was something that is designed for close-up contact. Now, 
what do we take from all this? Well, I think we need to be careful how much we read into it and take out of stuff like this. But I think it's important that as we look at what this weapon really is and how it was deployed, that we remind ourselves of what Paul has already said. And that has to do with we need to have, folks, a very proper, accurate perspective on who our enemy really is. And Paul leaves no question. He makes that abundantly clear. Going back to verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What's critical for us to remember, folks, when we talk about, especially about the sword of the spirit, is this. Our weapon, uh, sorry, our enemy is not people. It is not other people. And I think it's important that we understand how our enemy works. I mean, Paul was concerned about it. In 2 Corinthians, he said, So we, we don't want to be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. Paul said, we need, we, I know how Satan works. You know, the story is told of General George Patton, who um, engaged a, a vicious, significant battle with Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, known as the Desert Fox. And the story goes that after the battle, and the, the forces under Patton won uh, a resounding victory over this uh, formidable force. The story goes that after the battle, Rommel, uh, sorry, uh, Patton stood up and apparently shouted out over the German forces, said something to the effect, Rommel, you magnificent bleep. I read your book. What was he talking about? Interesting you ask. In 1937, Rommel wrote a book entitled Infanterie Greifan. I'd read that, wouldn't you? It's called, it was on infantry attacks. And in that book, he laid out all his strategies as to how he would do a battle. <laughs> and Patton read the book. And he beat him. It was critical for Patton that he knew how the enemy worked. Do you know how the enemy of our souls, do we know how Satan works? You know, folks, some are troubled by all this military imagery, but I think I want to say it, there's a difference between having a military mindset and doing violence. Doing violence against any people is completely contrary to the ethos and essence of our Christian faith. But a military mindset recognizes that we are in a battle, not a Sunday school picnic. And we have a formidable enemy. And we know how the enemy works. The world, folks, that you and I live in is not a neutral territory. It is a battleground. And we're fighting against cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The whole purpose of our armor, the whole purpose of the sword of the spirit is to stand against the schemes of the devil. Not to gut people. Okay, so let's, look, let's come back and look in a little bit more detail at this. Because you see, frequently in scripture, God's word is that which has power. 
You go to Psalm 119, 176 verses, all but three have direct reference to the word of God in some form or another. And there are many times in there, and he talks about the power, the power of God's word. So when Paul says here, take up or receive the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, I wonder what you think of. I mean, typically I thought it was the Bible, the whole of the Bible. Okay, I'm going to date myself here, but how many, how many of you here remember doing sword drills. Yes, yes. So we put our sword in the air and try to beat the other pylons beside us to see if we could find that verse first. See, sword drills. But you know, when we think of the word of God, most often in scripture, the word that's used there is the word logos. Right. In the beginning was the word, logos, and the word is with God. In other portions where it talks about God's word, it is the word logos. Interestingly enough here, Paul chooses to use another word. You're not going to remember this, but it will be on the exam. And it is the word rhema. Rhema. Now what does rhema mean? What is it different from logos? Rhema is a word that speaks of a, a particular prophetic message. And it's often used, listen of the gospel. Think about that. Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the gospel. Our weapon is the good news, which is what gospel means. Our weapon is the gospel. Now, there is a dimension of judgment, no question. I mean, the Bible makes it very clear. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And Revelation talks about the Lamb's book of life. If our name is not found there, we are in deep trouble. But there's another judgment that I think is more significant because it pertains to what we're talking about, who our enemy is here. Paul says in Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and, and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. I love this part. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands, he set this aside and nailed it to the cross. Hallelujah for that. But then he says this, speaking of the enemies, which Paul's talked about here, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Folks, the world does not need from us as the church a sword of judgment. It needs a sword of good news. When I think of how Jesus fought, remember his battle? That was a close, intimate, intense battle with Satan in the wilderness. And sometimes, don't forget that one of the gospels says that Jesus was driven by the spirit into the wilderness and it says, and he was to be tested by the devil for 40 days. It wasn't just on the last day that Satan showed up. He was on him for 40 solid days, but then he comes as these, what we call the three temptations. And how did Jesus, in that close hand-to-hand combat, how did he respond? What are the three words that came out of his mouth? It is written. It is written. It is written. I have to think, folks, that for most of us here, the most intense and taxing battles are not those global on the grand scale of things, but they are on the very personal, often unseen by other struggles. 
struggles with anxiety, with fear, with anger, with lust, with pride, or battles with those imaginations, those fantasies that never have taken place and likely never will. I, I, like it was Mark Twain who once said, in my life I have, I have had many, many troubles. Less than half of which ever came true. Well, consider the influence. I mean, how do we stop our mind thinking of those things? You know, as parents, where do, you know, when our kids are 20 minutes late, where do we go? In our minds, where are our kids? Dead. Or in a hospital. Or in the ditch. Or someplace else where we don't think they should go. <sighs> How do we stop that? Well, c- consider the influences that have formed the way we think. I mean, part of it's personality. Part of it's our history and experience. A lot of it is the media that we expose ourselves to. Both mass media and that big black hole social media. When Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome, he said, listen, don't let the, the way Phillips interprets that, he says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. But be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. Okay, how do you do that? How do you renew your mind? Excellent question. We think according to what we feed our minds or what our minds are exposed to. Okay? Um, for a couple of summers, I worked construction while I was in college, and I worked as a group of guys, great group of guys, but if I can say it kindly, their vocabulary, how shall I say, was fairly um, limited. <laughs> but I will say this, they were very creative, honestly. I never knew you could get the F word into so many combinations of words to somehow express yourself. And after you're submerged in that for a while and you hear it day in and day out, I find myself thinking those words involuntarily. You know, somebody cuts you off. What the? I never thought that word before. Well, how do you overcome that? Uh, folks, I think it simply comes with an intentional effort to what I would call crowd out things. Crowd out those fantasies. Crowd out those worst-case scenarios that our minds seem to go to by default. With what? With the truth. We crowd it out with the truth. Two thoughts cannot occupy the same mental space at the same time. So we crowd out those words. And that's what I think Paul had in mind when he admonished the, the Philippians. And he said this, Finally, brothers, whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, Whatsoever is just, whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is commendable. If anything is worthy of praise, think about those things. Well, how do you do that? Well, you've got to have something to crowd it out with, right? Where do you get these honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable things? How about the word of God? I'm not going to give you my full uh, platinum version of Scripture memory because I already beat you up with that once or twice. But honestly, folks, if, if we want to know how to crowd out those thoughts, 
then we crowd it out with truth. We crowd it out with the word of God. And the best way that I know how, and I'd say the spiritual discipline that has as much, if not more impact than any other spiritual impact on my life, it's putting the word of God into my heart by memory. You know, I'm sure I've shared with you before when I went to, to school in the States, it was during the 70s, Vietnam was at its peak. Most of my buddies either had been to Nam or were on their way. One of the guys I went to school with was John. He was a Marine. He is a Marine. Sorry. You never was a Marine. You always is. Once a Marine, always a Marine. And you call him or her. Well, that's awkward. Sir. <laughs> Anyways. John would tell how that what he would do in his spare time was he would learn how to take apart his M16 as much as he possibly could and put it all back together again. You'd see guys around Fort Bragg sitting on the ground, somebody with a stopwatch, and this guy standing there, just sitting on the ground, taking his rifle apart, putting it back together. In 90 seconds, blindfolded. Why? Because why could John spend numerous hours, countless hours, dismantling and putting back together his weapon because he knew, he knew, he knew that he knew he was engaged in a battle of life and death. And here's my fear. I don't think we as the church of North America get it. I don't think we're convinced we're in a battle that is more urgent, more intense for the souls of women and men and children than there was in Vietnam. But there's something else we need to understand about this weapon. It is the sword of the spirit. And I think what Paul is making abundantly clear here is that the relationship between the word of God and the spirit of God is inseparable. I think it is a very, very dangerous posture to assume that because I have the Holy Spirit in me and because the Holy Spirit illumines and speaks to me that I really don't need the scriptures. That the Spirit of God speaks to me, I don't, you know, I don't need the scriptures. I think it's also equally dangerous to say that because we have scriptures, that God has finally given us his word, that we, therefore we don't need the Holy Spirit as much as they did before the scriptures came to us. A dependence on and commitment to scriptures that minimizes or marginalizes or neglects altogether that vital ministry of the Holy Spirit is in danger of producing little more than intellectual knowledge of scripture and a dead orthodoxy. Quite frankly, I think there's little on the spiritual level more sad than a church that's got its theology together. Man, oh man, you can articulate your knowledge. You can quote it. You win every sword drill. But for all intents and purposes, folks, they're dead. How do they get there? The enemy is a masterful martial artist. He uses our momentum and direction to push us way off kilter. And he can get us so caught up in making sure that we've got our theology right. Now listen, I teach theology. So don't hear me saying that I don't think theology is important. It is. But if we are so concerned that we get our theology right and we're going to determine whether or not we're going to fellowship with other people or be engaged in the battle that really matters with other people who maybe hold different theology 
or if we are so caught up in, in addressing social justice issues as we should be, but to the point where it's all on us and we're not dependent on the Holy Spirit that is doomed to frustrating failure. So, how do we maintain this tension, this balance between dependence on the Holy Spirit and on the Word of God? Another excellent question. And it brings us to our second point. How is this weapon deployed? How do we use this? Well, Paul explains it. Verse 18, this is carry on right after he says, and take up the spirit, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. How do you do this? Here it is. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, I never did like English in high school, but I've come to appreciate that words are really important and that sentence structure, what we call syntax, is really important. We need to notice here that the word praying has an I-N-G on it. That's called a participle. Well, who, what does a participle do? The answer, who gives a rip? <laughs> well, what a participle, participle does is it ex, it's a definer. It's, an, it's a qualifier. It explains something or describes something that's going on before it. So this emphasis on praying in the spirit is describing what's going on before it. I would not agree with those who say it's specifically about how to use the sword or how to take up the helmet of salvation, et cetera, et cetera, because that's the verse immediately preceding. I think it really goes back to verse 14, where he says this, stand, therefore, having done all this stuff, putting all the armor. Stand how? Praying always in the spirit. It's the whole armor. The whole armor needs to be put on in this prayer. Praying, folks, is not just an item on a menu of spiritual disciplines. And I, and I don't agree with those who suggest that it's the seventh weapon or the seventh piece of armor. I think more what Paul is saying is, folks, prayer is a way of living. It is what one writer called spiritual breathing. Now, how do I get that? Well, Paul says, praying at all times. The scripture says this in other places. Praying without ceasing. All, several verses that we could go to. And I suggest to you folks, this is how we put on the whole armor of God. It is with prayer. It is with prayer. Now listen, know my heart in this. The last thing I want to do is heap a pile of guilt on you prayerless pylons. <laughs> I shared with my son last night, if ever there was a struggle that I had to go through personally in this message, it's this whole thing on prayer. Because if I were to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not, but you understand I'm not. But if I were to ask for a show of hands to indicate how many of us would say that this is probably one of, if not the area, where I've got the greatest room for improvement or where I struggle the most, it is prayer. My guess is the vast majority of us would have to put our hands up or confess lying later. What this means, folks, is that the armor of God that God has provided for us cannot be put on or used without that constant communion with the one who gave it to us. Any single piece of armor in the, or the whole panoply of armor cannot function mechanically or magically. It is powerless in and of itself. 
wow, Bill, wait a second. Are you, you're including the word of God, but the word of God is powerful and quick and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's right. If it's used properly, if it's used in the spirit, I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He said, in other words, you cannot rely even on these things. What? All, all these pieces of armor. He said, you cannot rely on these things in and of themselves and imagine that because you have them, you can never fall or never fail. Rather, he says, a mere intellectual acquaintance with the truth, though it is absolutely essential, cannot guard us against Defeat. I gave my testimony, I don't know how many times before I became a Christian. Oh, and people thought it was wonderful. They bought it. I was a pastor's kid. I grew up in the pastor's home. I grew up in the church, and I'd heard so many testimonies. You just do a little cut and paste. Take a bit of his, take that phrase, take, and you give this testimony, and it has nothing to do with the reality of my heart, and people come, oh, Billy, that was wonderful. And I'm gagging. Think, I wanted somebody to finally come and say to me and get in my grill and say, Bill, you know that's not true. That's why the demographic that I would say I'm most burdened for are what we call the Gubas. G-U-B-A, you know what they are? Growing up born-againers. They're the kids born into Christian homes. They come to church. We drag them up in church. And we never ask them sometimes the tough questions. Well, I think what Paul is trying to say to us here, folks, here's how we are finally to be strong in the Lord. Here's how we are to deploy all the weaponry, all the, the armor and this weapon, the sword of the spirit. It is by praying in the spirit. Now that raises a question. What is praying in the spirit? Well, here's my Canadian answer. It depends. Sorry. Excuse me? That's about as Canadian as I can get. Depends. It depends who you talk to. I mean, some would say, obviously, praying in the spirit is praying in tongues. Does, does that, of course that happens. But, you know, Paul says you're praying with all prayer. And that might include praying in tongues. But there's all kinds of other prayer. There's all these prayers called laments. Have you ever prayed lament? Yeah. What is praying in the spirit? Let me put it simply. I think prayer in the spirit is prayer that is inspired by, enabled by, and guided by the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul gives us this wonderful insight into the, the spirit's ministry in our prayer life in Romans 8 when he says this, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for saints according to the will of God. You ever been in those times when you're praying, you run out of words, and all you can do is groan? That's where we say, Holy Spirit, take over and interpret these groans from the depths of my heart. I wonder how different the world, I wonder how different we would be as a church. Folks, listen to me. I wonder how different we would be 
If we invested more time praying for others who are not like us than critiquing and criticizing them. I wonder how different we would be as a church if we prayed in the spirit with all prayer and supplications for other saints who maybe have a different view on women in ministry, who maybe have a different view on the gifts of the spirit, who maybe have a different view on things that you think are absolutely pivotal. What about at home? Hey, dads, does God hear our voice raising our kids' names to him more than our kids hear our voice criticizing them? Dear women, you have to put up with some morons as, 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 as husbands. <laughs> My wife has five kids. Four we had together, and then there's me. Ladies, is, does God hear your prayer for your husband more than your husband hears your concern? Same as you ask guys. What difference would it make if we were doing what Paul said here, praying at all times in the spirit with all, with all prayers and supplication? I have to think we'd be a different people. You know, the wonderful thing about this phrase where he says, praying for all the saints, that reminds us that we're not in this battle alone. And if I'm to be praying for somebody else, you know what that means? That means somebody else is praying for me. Or should be. Listen, the battlefield is no place for differences of opinion or perspective to impinge on our cooperative engagement in the battle that really matters. When we're in the trenches and we're on the battlefield, it doesn't matter what political party you embrace. It doesn't matter whether you are a Calvinist or Arminian. It doesn't matter whether you're feminist or whatever. It doesn't matter because the battle that really matters doesn't matter. That battle is for the people who need Christ. That battle is for the souls of young people, men and women, who need the gospel, who need the sword of the good news. And if we get so flippin' caught up in our puny little differences, then shame on us. And the enemy's winning. All right, let's bring this to a close. Since the timer says zero. What are some takeaways? Well, just some reminders. General reminders that we've kind of rehearsed as we've gone through this whole thing and it says, number one, we're in a battle, folks. Let's not forget that. We are not at a Sunday school picnic. We are in a battle. The world we live in is not neutral territory. It is a battleground. And secondly, because we're in a battle, it is absolutely essential that we know who our enemy is. Let's never lose sight of the fact who the real enemy is. Dear people, the enemy is not the LGBTQ community. It is not the abortion. It is the powers of darkness. That's our enemy. All right, what about this weapon? Well, from our brief consideration of the sword of the spirit, the word of God is our only offensive weapon, but it is a message of good news. <laughs> 
the life and the death and the resurrection and the coming back again of Christ is good news. That is our weapon. That dismantles and disarms all the enemy's attempts. He's the father of lies, the author of confusion, and the accuser of the brethren. His agenda is to rob, kill, and destroy. That's Satan's agenda for every one of us. And Jesus said, but I have come that you might have what? Life. How much? More abundant life. That's the good news, folks. That is our sword. Like a weapon, we, it's essential that we know how to use it. That means I've got to spend time. That means I've got to get it into my heart. And it's a sword of the Spirit. That means that I have to be completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to help, it, to help me wield it properly. And how do we do this? It's praying at all times. The effectiveness of the armor of God is contingent on a vibrant, ongoing communication with the God who gives us all we need. And we pray for others. We pray for each other. Well, some of you, I would suspect today, are in the midst of horrific battles. I mean, a group this size, there's got to be some. And you find yourself wondering, quite frankly, about the effectiveness of this armor stuff. Really? Thought I had my shield up this week, but man, did I take a hit. And more specifically, the effectiveness of prayer. Really? My wife and I were talking with one of our kids this week. He said, you know what? Mom and dad, prayer and thoughts are pretty useless right now, quite frankly. Hmm. And maybe you've been praying so long for a circumstance or a situation or a person. And it seems there's no evidence that anything is happening at all. And maybe your soul resounds and resonates with David. You know, there's some marvelous psalms included in here. We call them lament psalms. And they're here in scripture. You know what they're there for? They're there for us to pray back to God. How about this one? Psalm 6, verse 3. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How about Psalm 13, verse 1? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Do you ever feel like that? Are you in that space? And find this whole series and this thing of praying in the Spirit rather grating. Well, you come to verse 5 in Psalm 13, and it says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. And my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Folks, the armor of God and prayer in the Spirit were never intended to make life a cakewalk. They were given because God knew life would be anything but. Didn't Jesus, you love the promises of Jesus? You know, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, that's great. How about this promise from Jesus? In the world, you will be literally, translation, squashed like grapes. And all God's people said, that's what I thought. He promised that. Paul said anyone who's going to live godly is going to suffer persecution. The armor 
The prayer in the Spirit is not meant to make life easy. It is there to remind us of what David said in the face of his enemy Goliath. He shouted at Goliath, and here's what he said. The battle is whose? The Lord's. And I believe that all these things are given to us to remind us of this wonderful thing. It's become my life chant. Despite what circumstances may say to the contrary, listen, folks, God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. And he is bigger. And the gates of hell don't stand a chance. Let me pray with you. Gracious Father, how we thank you um, for the many gifts of your grace to us. We are blessed to live in a country that affords us the luxury of public worship like this. Help us to never take this for granted. We're grateful that your word is true and it is sharp and quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We're grateful that we have this time together. But I'm also aware, Lord, that there may be many among us who are struggling intensely for whom the battle is particularly intense. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, through the power of your word, and the grace and imminence of your presence that we would know the joy and the peace that passes all understanding can't be explained. And would you do that for us and for any in need here this morning in a way that will bring glory back to where it only belongs and that's at your feet, Lord Jesus, because we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.